tomorrow, a week ago uh, from tomorrow, we had a leaders retreat. And uh, there was 18 of us. That was our staff and spouses and our, our board and spouses. And we, we just get together and we start worshiping and praising the Lord and praying and uh, waiting on God. And we do have a plan. We just don't go in there and wait. You know, we, but we need to see how the Lord wants to direct us. And um, there's something about worship that makes us a little bit more sensitive to the voice of the Holy Spirit. Anybody can sing. Singing is not necessarily worshiping. They even had someone singing the national anthem Sunday at the big football game. Anybody can sing. But there's singing that's worshiping the Lord, loving Him, expressing the soul to Him and, and just exalting Him. Um, I want to share something from um, Acts chapter 13. We'll get there. I'm going to preface a couple places before we get to Acts 13. But history, if, and I love history. The reason I like history is because it's about people. It's about people, where they're at, what's happening. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a big genealogy person. I've done research on Brenda's family. You know, I've, I took Brenda to one of her family reunions and introduced her <laughs> to cousins <laughs> and people in her family that I knew them by name, who they belonged to, which person in the family they belonged to. And, but... You know, it's just interesting when you see what people go through in the course of life. And my grandmother lost her mother um, when she was just a child. And uh, I stood at Sonora Simpson's gravesite there in the Oak Hill Cemetery in Evansville. And we're just thinking about my grandmother who lived to be 100. My dad's mother lived to be 100. How she must have felt standing at the grave of her mother when she was just a child. And over in the arms of another family member was a little baby boy that, that uh, she had problems right after she gave birth and uh, passed away and had all these little kids. I thought, here I'm standing in the same place. It's almost made it feel like it's a holy place. So you see things that happen in history that changes, radically changes the course. Sometimes it's negative. But I think... You can see things that's happened in history that redirected history to a better outcome, right? That's more positive. Our church has had those kind of moments. Back in the 1950s when, you know, the pastor and the church felt like the, the old Jewish synagogue downtown Tuscaloosa was, was not where they should be permanently located. And... Um, they felt like God spoke to them about buying seven acres out here. I wish uh, Raymond was here. I think it might have even been a dirt road at the time. It wasn't much of anything out here, a cornfield. And here we are. Changed, totally changed the history. And so you probably have moments in your own life. Remember two weeks ago, and Jeff did such a great job last week. Great message. <coughs> Two weeks ago, I preached a message on longing for Jesus. 
and the fasting. And I want to take you back to that just for a moment as we look at what we're going to talk about in Acts 13. But Jesus told them that while he is with them, that they would not need to be fasting, but the time would come when he would be taken from them, and then they would start fasting. Well, he was bringing into a moment in history with his relationship with the disciples that would radically alter how they look at history and how, how they would practice spiritual disciplines. So right now there's no need for them to practice spiritual discipline of fasting because I'm with them. But the time will come, future, it was future, the time will come when that will change, right? He says, and then they will begin to fast. So fasting is not mentioned in Acts one by word, but prayer is. And they were there praying. Now let's just think about what happened in Acts 1 and Acts 2. He told them to go and wait in Jerusalem until they're endued with power from on high. And that was probably seven days wait. Because Pentecost is about 50 days after Passover. Jesus dies right after Passover. You know, that, that night... Is Passover, and the next day is a holy day, so they won't leave him on the cross. So 50 days, he, he was in, in the grave three days, so he appeared to the disciples as a risen Savior 40 days. We're told that specifically. He, that 40 days, he, was, he had revealed himself over a span of 40 days as being raised from the dead, and then he tells them it, it was somewhere around six or seven days, but it was several days that they were told to go into the city and wait. Now, I don't know if they all stayed together the whole six or seven days, but we do know this, that when it happened, it happened in one location. At a specific time, nine o'clock in the morning, on a specific day, the day of Pentecost. And so I think we, should, we could say that the ones who got that empowerment happened to be in that building at that moment on that day when it happened, right? And that changed the course of their history. Now, I didn't say they were fasting, but I just, I'm just thinking, well, they probably weren't going out and eating. Or maybe some of them were out eating and missed it. Who knows? But there must have been some degree. Well, let's just, I think we can say that they at least fasted whatever their plans were. And whatever they had on their schedule. How hard would that be for us? How difficult with our busyness and our schedule and and, and we got it down to boom, boom, boom. How hard would that be for us to set aside an extended time of waiting on the Lord? Well, they did, and the 120 people were radically empowered by the Holy Spirit to be witnesses unto Christ. Now, that moment, that moment before the day was over, 
the church went from 120 to over 3,000. That's kind of a radical change, isn't it? How about that baptismal service? That was a pretty good line of people. And they were baptized. He even said, you know, repent and be baptized, every one of you. And so they had an immersion. Maybe it was a mass immersion, but here's 3,000 people come to the Lord right there. This, this event in the upper room spilled out into the streets of these pilgrims who were from different parts of the world, mostly from North Africa and in that area of the Mediterranean. And they had come there for the festival, and they, and they heard the gospel under the power of the Holy Spirit, they were convicted, and 3,000 people trusted Jesus as Messiah and Lord. When the bridegroom will be taken from them, Jesus said, then they will fast. Now let's go to Acts 13. Then they will fast. Now between Acts 3 and 4, well, even after Acts 2, I just mentioned the 3,000 people in Acts 2, Acts 3, of course, is Peter and John walks into the temple. And as it's going in, the crippled man asks for alms and uh, some help, some charity. And, and you know the story. They, they don't have any money, but they said, we have something else. And they spoke to him the healing word of the Lord, and the crippled man was immediately healed. And before that day was over, 5,000 people, first part of Acts 6, Acts 4, 5,000 people in the temple courtyard area trusted the Lord, believed on Jesus as Messiah. So church was up and going. But after that, sometimes success brings challenges, right? All the attention started going to this problem. And so persecution started. It started with Stephen being stoned to death. And then they just got the taste of blood of getting rid of these people. And, and, and it said the church scattered from Jerusalem, except the apostles. And they went everywhere, and as they scattered, they preached the gospel. And, and you have Saul being the chief nemesis of that persecution, getting saved. And then you have the execution of James. Isn't it odd that Jesus picks three men out to give them special training? More attention than the other nine. And one of them is the first one to be killed. And then they, who do they go after? They go after another one of the three. They're going after the head of the church. They're going after the leaders. And they, you know... Herod thought, well, we, we really help people get happy about this killing James. Let's go arrest Peter. And he gets miraculously delivered. And then he has the healing of Dorcas and the baptism of Cornelius. And so a lot of things are happening. And we get to Acts 13. And here's kind of like where things are at here. And this is just a little bit of perspective for me. It's like the church kind of settles in to now they're not under persecution in places like Antioch. In fact, the church is exploding in Antioch. Antioch, at the time of Jesus' life, was about 500,000 strong in population. That's a pretty good-sized city. 
Rome is considered <clears throat> the largest populated city, about a million. And then Alexandria, I think, was the second most populated city where these huge libraries and, and that part of northern Africa was, was incredibly blessed. And then you had Antioch over here, and the church is just exploding. And Barnabas goes and personally recruits Saul from his hometown of Tarsus, brings it back, and he's part of the teaching team. And this is where Acts 13 picks it up. It's almost like the church is settled into a, a state of blessing. But here's five men who have set apart themselves to seek the Lord. Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius, Manaean, and Saul. Is that, is that the five? And Lucius is also called Niger, but those were, the, those were the five men. They were the five leaders of the church. And it says they were worshiping. Well, let's, let's just read it. If you're there, Acts 13. Now the church, now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, it was Simeon that called, well, it was called Niger. Lucius of Cyrene, which was North Africa. Manaean, who had been brought up with Herod, the Tetrarch. And Saul, and while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, isn't it interesting that worshiping was part of their retreat? I, I, I would call this kind of like the retreat we were on. They, they had separated themselves. It's just five men. They're the leaders of the church. They're part of the prophets and the teachers of the church. And they're seeking the Lord. Why are they seeking the Lord? That we do not know. But we do know this that it was important enough for them to do what Jesus said in Matthew 9, that they will begin to do when I'm taken away. Because he is, they are longing in some way for Jesus because they're fasting and they're worshiping. And it says, while they're doing this, the Holy Spirit speaks and says this, set apart for me Barnabas, and saw for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they fasted and prayed for a while, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. So fasting shows up finally in Acts 13, where it seems like the church being blessed is in a state that we, we really can get a sense that they feel like that there's more to what God wants them to do. Now, we don't know. We, we don't know what they were seeking the Lord for. But let's, let's go back and look at what Jesus said about fasting in Matthew 6. Because some people think fasting should be totally private, almost secretive, because of what Jesus said in Matthew 6. Because he says this, this is verse 16, he talks, about, he talks about prayer, he talks about fasting, he talks about giving, and in fasting he says this, when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head, wash your face, so it will not be obvious to people that you're fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. 
And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you openly. Now, reading that, is he telling us that fasting should be strictly private and secretive? Obviously not. What is he talking about fasting? What is the point here? Same point he makes with praying. He says, look around you. How are the Pharisees doing this? Don't do it their way. Don't follow their example. Because what are they doing? They're all about image. He uses the word hypocrites. You know, that's one, that's one of the things that people say, oh, they're a hypocrite. One of the neat things that happened to me over the last few days was my brother and I went up to visit a cousin that we're very concerned about, concerned about his soul, and we got a witness to him for about three hours. He didn't accept the Lord. We started pulling a gun on him and said, you're going to get saved. But we're trusting what we shared over three hours that God is speaking to his heart. But the Lord just opened up doors and we prayed for this older couple that we met in this coffee shop. And uh, I might have said something if you read uh, on Facebook, but we just got to talking to him. And before we left, and this is when I saw War Room, it did something to me. And it, and it just wasn't momentary. Because I'm asking people wherever I go, if I get the, the, the door open, I'm going for it. It says, what can I pray for you for? And here's this older couple. He played football at, the, at Indiana University of Indiana in 1951, 1952, 1953, and he stood about that tall. I don't know whether he shrunk or what. Pete Fisher, he gave us his name, and he was so entertaining, and he talked about playing Notre Dame. Of course, I'm, not, I'm thinking, well, is he, it's just the four of us, my brother and I and he and his wife, and in that conversation, they discover that, we, that I was a pastor. And uh, we got to talking about church and faith. And we ended up, I said, what can we pray for you about? And she said, we got a 20-something-year-old, 25-year-old grandson living with us, has been so mixed up on meth, and we don't know what to do. So here we are, four of us in this coffee shop, holding hands, praying for this grandson by name. And I'm thinking, what a great door you opened. But there was something that happened in the conversation. She says, what do you think about prophecy? And she said, I want to ask you about prophecy. And, and she says, you know about this person? And then she asked me what I thought about Rick Warren. And I said, I love Rick Warren. She said, well, you know he said that Christians and Muslims worship the same God. And I said, I've never heard him say that. Well, he did. I, I heard, a, a per, you know, anybody that's on television that says something, it's got to be true. You know, and she says, he, yeah, they said he said that. And I said, you know what? I've seen him in tough interviews. That, that man never has budge. You know, he hasn't wavered. They try to make him pressure and give a different answer. And he's straight line. Jesus is the only way. And, and so I researched it. 
And it was a guy that wrote an article for the Orange County newspaper that made up stuff. Instead of people researching it, they just went with it. And here's where when you have the Word of God and you have truth that you are passionate for, think about how people are thrown off course by just hearing one thing and accepting it. And instead of them being, maybe God help Rick Warren and his wife, you know, they had a son that committed suicide and handled it so graciously. I, I follow him. On, he's one of the people I follow on Twitter. I have the utmost respect. I've heard him in person. Years ago, Brendan and I heard him and his wife talk. And the man is straight up hungry for God. And when the church is like facing with these things, what, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to be passionate for the things of God and not let negativity get into us. Even if it's true, it's done thrown you off. Instead of thinking about what we might can do in the kingdom of God, we're, we're wrestling with issues that are absorbing all of our energy and it's not directed to anything positive. And here we are spending our time Worrying about where our culture is going instead of saying, God, speak to us by the Holy Spirit, just like you spoke to these men. Could it be when these five men were there, they were praying about the church? Could it be that? I have a feeling they were praying about the church. And they were asking what God wanted them to do next because they were worshiping and fasting, so they were it's specific. They were asking God to give them direction. Maybe they felt like they needed to go out, but where did they go first? What are they, how are they to fund? Who, who's supposed to go? Is five of them supposed to go, or four, or three? And, and here the Holy Spirit speaks and says, it's not five, it's not four, it's not three, it's two. And it's the two most prominent teachers in the church. That's not who we usually send out. We don't send out generals. We send out privates. <laughs> we, like, we need to keep the generals here. And so the Holy Spirit speaks. Let's look at the role of fasting. Here's, here's four observations that I want to give you from this, from this view of Acts 13 and what's happening there. Holy Spirit speaks Clearly, distinctly, separate to me Paul and Barnabas for what I've called them. And after they fasted and prayed more, they laid hands on them. All right, here's, here's one thing. This fits what Jesus said in Matthew 9. This is after he's gone, the church is fasting. The leadership of the church is fasting. Why? Because we need the Holy Spirit's direction. And they were seeking the Lord, separating. There's something about the spiritual discipline of fasting and seeking the Lord. Here's the second thing. This was a corporate fast. This was not a private fast. This was not a secretive fast. These are five people, five men, who made a decision that corporately they were going to seek the Lord. They were not going to hide in a closet, individually, and wait for God to speak to them. 
They were going to meet together, seek the Lord, and pray. They were fasting together as leaders. And here, this is what I think about 40 days of decrease. Could it be that our church corporately goes down this path of a 40-day focus, collectively reading the same Scripture, thinking about the same dynamics? Could it be that we just might hear the Holy Spirit speak to us? I think there's a great likelihood that God's going to speak to us. He did to them, didn't he? He spoke to them. There was five of them, and they were waiting on God and seeking him. Here's the third thing. The resulting effect of the fasting, praying, and worshiping was the guidance of the Holy Spirit came through. Not their intelligence, not their plans, not what they think they should do. How did the Holy Spirit speak to them? We're not told that, but how do you think it probably? You think the Holy Spirit like, like spoke audibly in, in the room, or was it through one of the vessels that was yielded to God? This is after the upper room, the endowment of power from on high. They said there's prophets and teachers, meaning there's people who have a, a prophetic gifting of hearing the voice of God and forth-telling what God is speaking to him. We know Agabus was a prophet very, very much involved in the conversion of Saul, was he not? You know, and our Ananias was involved. There's these prophets that are involved. And God speaks to them and tells them prophetically, go and speak to them. I believe one of these men became the voice that the Holy Spirit needed to say, and there was this word from the Lord. Somebody has to give the word of the Lord. Somebody has to hear the word of the Lord and be willing to give the word of the Lord. We've had that happen in, in some of our worship services. Is it a little nervous? Is it kind of nerve-wracking? Sure it is. To do something like that is scary. Thank God for people who are willing to give it a go. Especially when it's a prophetic word. A word in our language that we can understand. The message in tongues, but when the interpretation comes, you're out there. And you're trusting God to give you what's coming next. But he does that with willing vessels filled with the Holy Spirit. Here's the fourth thing. This event, think about it, this moment that we read in Acts 13 changed the course of history. Church was doing great in Antioch. But God was going to take the two most prominent men in the leadership of that church and send them out on months at a time, maybe even years at a time, on long trips to do missions work. You know where Barnabas shows up first in the church? 
son of consolation. It's when they're all selling properties and bringing money and laying it at the apostles' feet. Barnabas had property on the island of Cyprus. Island, island property. Lakefront property. <laughs> Expensive property. And it says specifically that Barnabas was one of those who sold some property and brought the proceeds. So how many churches are affected by how they treat people because they think that certain people give more money than other people? Or how many churches that people that give more money like the idea that they give more money and they can kind of maneuver things to their liking? I know you've never heard of that taking place. But people get a little nervous when the money people, the money people have left. That's like, Barnabas is, is going with his tithe? He's taking his tithe to go on some kind of trip. We just believe maybe Lucian should be going. He doesn't have near the job and, and professional assets as Barnabas. You see how we might think differently from the Holy Spirit? Holy Spirit is going to give us things that's going to strain us and press us because we don't think that way. We think in such human terms that we, our assets, we, we look at those and we do not hear sometimes the word of the Lord because it doesn't fit what we think should happen. But they receive it. The church blesses them, lays hands on them, sends them out with their blessing. They are the financing of those missions trips. And, and you read that first trip, they make that way over to Cyprus and then back up into uh, Iconium and, Mist and Lystra and Derby. And they circle back around, and as they are establishing churches and having responses, when they come back through, they're, they're organizing those churches with leadership. They're already appointing people to lead this, this group of believers. And they get back to Antioch, and they give the report, and everybody's so, so excited. But it started with people fasting and praying. I just think... You know, I, I will, I don't know how many people I ask. I, I'll ask, I ask a waitress, we had breakfast in Evansville, Monday morning. We was in Evansville, Indiana, Monday morning, 8 o'clock, having breakfast. And I asked that waitress, you ever heard of War Room? No, I said, oh, you, you got to see it. You got to see it, it'll radically change your life. Well, we have something better than War Room. We have the presence of God in us. And if we collectively, corporately, listen to me, if we corporately think about, Pastor Larry and I was talking about, he said this could be a history-changing 40 days that when a group of people, five men did this, and look what happened. Do you realize every epistle that Paul wrote, he wrote a lot of them in the New Testament, was part of the results of what happened there? Because every one of the places he writes a letter to later, he reached them on these mission trips. And every person, Titus, Philemon, Timothy, all those people that he wrote to personally, they were part of his mission experience. So look how much of the New Testament 
was scripted because of that one meeting of five people seeking God and worshiping and fasting and hearing the word of the Lord. Look at what happens when you point back to that moment and say that was a history-changing moment in Acts 13. In fact, the rest of the book of Acts is dedicated for what happened after that prayer room. Do we sometimes think that our time of seeking the, God, seeking the Lord is just for us personally? Or is it going to be collectively something that God uses to radically change people's lives? Do you think God can use you and help you to create a different history for TFA than the one that would normally happen otherwise? It doesn't have to be a bad history. It just wouldn't be the kind of history that it would be when people really seek the Lord corporately. There's a, there's a neat thing in Second Chronicles 7, 14. And Brandon, if you can come back. Chronicles 7, 14, we know it very well, don't we? But the context of Chronicles 7, 14 comes... At the same moment when the dedication of the temple of the Lord that Solomon had finished building and they committed it to the Lord, the glory of the Lord filled the place where the priest couldn't even stay. And God did a hypothetical with Solomon and the people. He says, the glory of the Lord filled the house. And he said to Solomon, but if the people of Israel go off track and away from me and I bring destruction and I strike the land because of their wickedness and their sin. If my people... See, it's a different context, isn't it? But if those same people who got off track will come back to a place of seeking me and seeking my face and turning from their ways, I will heal the land. And see, we, we, don't, we don't have the same emotion, but you say it to a Jewish person, the Ha'eretz, the land, their covenant is that piece of property over there. They don't have a covenant without that piece of property. That property is, is a is fundamental to how they think they don't have a relationship with God apart from the covenant of that property the land there's a relationship with God personally that is calling them to worship him but it's the land it's, it's that place that God says this is going to be for the descendants of Abraham forever and he says and I will heal the location of where they reside as my covenant people. And to me, what is the land to the church? What would be the equivalent? It's our relationships. We're not connected to a covenant that's based on property, but we're, ba we're in a covenant based on community. And I think to us, that promise is that he would heal the body the body of believers. He would bring refreshing to the body of believers. Don't you want that? 
Stand with me.